0: Good morning and welcome. We've been talking about the good life for the last couple of weeks, a series that Pastor Craig has been leading us through, and we're going to continue looking at what it means to live the good life. Um, I just want to say, though, that before we can really get in today's message, which is forward-facing, we need to step back in time. So we're going to start back at the creation, when God created everything. He created us. He created the world. And you know what? He called it all very Good. But mankind in particular, he created for a specific purpose. We were made in the image of God, the Imago Dei. And he created us out of the dust. He breathed his life into us and made us very special for his purpose. We were made to bring glory and honor to God. That was part of what we were supposed to do. But we were also put on this earth as his reflection we were put on the earth and, and given dominion over his creation to steward it like God would. We, we were reflecting him in the management of the earth, in our relationships with others, in how we took care of his creation. So when we look at creation, the good life was originally perfect relationship with God. The good life was originally perfect relationship with God. God created us To have him in our lives. He created a God spaced hole inside of us, inside of every one of us, and he filled it, and it was perfect perfect relationship. God wanted us to have a beautiful communion with him. And that's how we started in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve basked in that. But we know that Adam and Eve didn't last very long in that regard. They decided that they knew better than God, and they took matters into their own hands. They made a decision to eat of the forbidden fruit, and when they did that, they rebelled against God and broke that perfect relationship that we had with God. Their sin disrupted more than that, though. It it disrupted all the beautiful, perfect relationship we had in general. So mankind, among each other, had broken relationship. Adam and Eve, from the minute that God said, what happened? They were pointing fingers, blaming each other. They realized they were naked and were ashamed, and they started putting up physical barriers in relationship with each other. More than that, they broke what we call agape love, that self-sacrificing love, and instead of that, they became focused on self, on self-perseverance. They weren't there to to help each other. They were all about self-interest. Mankind also broke perfect relationship with self in that process because when God created us he made it so that we were holy and good individually before him as well and when Adam and Eve took matters into their own hands they recognized that maybe God didn't know what he was talking about and they made a decision and it turned out that they harmed self while thinking that they knew best so they broke relationship with self and finally when God had said us is over over mankind or over creation dominion over creation they actually broke that too it says in genesis 3:17 through 19 cursed is the ground because of you in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life thorns and thistles it shall bring forth from you and you shall eat the plants of the field sin has its consequences I think if Adam and Eve had thought maybe the only penalty was death, it might have been easier to pallet. And Maybe that's why they actually took the forbidden fruit and ate of it, because perhaps they thought that the penalty of death was an exaggeration. We also understand they had a serpent in their ear telling them that it wasn't going to happen, that they weren't going to die. But the penalty was much more significant than they realized. The curse of death was upon them, but they still had to live. They had to live knowing that the harmony of good, and perfect relationship with God and all of creation was broken. And they had to live out of their own resources. It wasn't any longer something that they had full reliance on God for. They had to toil. They had to struggle. It was disrupted. So sin became a state of being, a state of existence. And that is what we call original sin. Let me say that again. Original sin was when sin became a state of being. So, when we look at the perfection of creation and we look at the results of the fall, let me ask you what would you say that sin is? Selfishness. Selfishness. What else? Disobedience. Rebellion. Rebellion. Ooh, I like that. Arrogance. Is there anything else? I'm hearing all kinds of things. Lying, yep, greed. Well, I think to understand what sin is, we have to understand the opposite of what sin is. What did Jesus tell us is the greatest command? Love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second command Love your neighbor as yourself. Sometimes we leave off the last part of that and say love your neighbor, but remember back to creation, God also created us to be whole before him. We also need to make sure that we're taking care of self in a good way as well. So loving God, loving neighbors as ourselves. So based on what God called good, the the, the things we are to do, I would venture that sin is anything intentional That does not show love to God, others, or self. Sin is anything intentional that does not show love to God, others, or self. So we look at this in four different ways. There's disbelief, there's pride, disobedience, which we sometimes call a voluntary transgression of a known law of God. It's a mouthful. And there's self-gratification. I was talking to Ian about this, and he said, well, sometimes I like to gratify myself with a really good burger. That's not what we're talking about. <laughs> There's care of self, and we can enjoy life, but seeking self over other relationships or at the harm of other relationships is bad. That's what we're getting at. It's, sin is anything other than the pure and beautiful relationships with God and others and self that he created us for. So I want to be clear on what sin is not. Sin is not involuntary and escapable shortcomings. It's not failures. It's not infirmities. It's not mistakes. Sin is, again, those intentional things that we do that does not show love to God, self, or others. And because of sin... That created a hopelessness, right? We all had that God-shaped hole that God filled at the start of creation. And with brokenness, it left a God-shaped hole that is empty. But the answer is that sin is not the end. There is good news, and we know that. Throughout the Bible, we see God desiring perfect relationship with us still. He did not want to leave us alone alone. And while we can't find our own path to God, God pursues us. He desires that we know him. He desires us for a perfect, holy relationship. And so our God comes after us. He knows he has to provide the means for redemption. And it's not enough to try to make us find our way to him because that's not going to happen. So God promised that he would redeem us. And that's what we got We got, first of all, the prevenient grace of God, the pursuing grace that draws us to Him. And then we have the palpable grace of the cross, where we recognize what Jesus did for us because we could not do it on our own. We know that Jesus Christ is the only thing that could overcome our separation from God because of sin. And when we look at Easter, we look at Good Friday, we recognize what happened on the cross, and we recognize the joy in the resurrection because for those of us who come to the cross on our knees and repent and confess and move forward, Jesus Christ says, it is done. It is done. That is the good news. But the cross and the resurrection is not the end. It is only the beginning. We cannot get stuck at the cross. We must recognize that there is a dual nature of sin. So the first part is original sin. That is the infection we all receive from Adam and Eve. It is the sin nature that lives in each of us. That is problem number one. If you could turn the slide for me, that'd be great, thanks. Then there is actual sin. Actual sin is those things that we personally do that are sin. So being clear, there's a sin nature that lives in us, and then there's the actual things that we do. Jesus Christ dealt with sin at the cross. He provided that means for reconciliation with God, but it requires action from each of us. It's like seeing a gift across the room and going, yay, there's a gift, but not actually taking the gift and opening it and accepting it. We have to accept the gift of Jesus Christ, first and foremost. And when we do that, our actual personal sin, we repent of it. We give it to God. God justifies us. And that is just as if I'd never sinned. We're washed clean of that sin. So that is the cure for sin problem number two. But what about problem number one? that original sin? How do we deal with that? What is the cure? That is where we're going to look today as part of the good life. So let's turn to our passage in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 and 9 through 13, and it's going to be on the screen, but you can also look on the back of your, your notes in your bulletin or in your hard copy of your Bible or on your phone, whatever works for you. Um, to set the stage quickly for this passage, Paul is writing to the Romans They are let back into Rome after Emperor Nero had kicked out the Christians, but these are people who are Christians. They're living out their faith in a hostile place, which makes them even stronger because they have to be strong to live in such a hostile environment. So Paul's writing to them has a very interesting note. He says here, I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, By the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. There's a lot in those two verses. But I think we absolutely have to remember that Paul is writing to people who are Christians. They have tasted the good life. They know what it means to have freedom in Jesus Christ. So why is he telling them that there's more? He's telling them because there's an action to be taken. He says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is a self-sacrifice that they need to make. And more than that, it's something that must be pleasing to God. So Paul expands on this a bit more by noting that They also need to be transformed by renewing of their minds. But they're Christians. They're saved. They're justified. Why would he need to write this again? Because the cross and the resurrection are not the end. They're just the beginning. The work of God in us continues throughout our lifetime to transform us into the image of Christ To put behind the old self and embrace living fully as Christ would. I must remind us that this is not legalistic works. It is not something we do because we're proud and say, oh, look at me, I'm the great Christian up here on the podium. It's not the way it works. And Paul actually says this in verse 3. He admonishes them. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. He wants us to think about this seriously. What is God asking us to do? And then he goes on to say in verses 9 through 13, he describes what this looks like. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Remember, this isn't to be prideful. Do not lag in zeal, be ardent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in suffering, persevere in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, extend hospitality to strangers. The Romans are being called to change their outlook. They are being called to serve God a little bit differently than they have been doing In his letters to the churches throughout the New Testament, Paul is really good about calling out things that he wants to to condone and say, you're doing a great job, keep it up. That is not the case here. He is not saying continue doing something great. He's calling them to take action, something new. Paul is calling them to holy living. And the call is not just for the Romans, it's also for us today. The call is to be holy Jesus, the risen Messiah, actually gives us the same call and we look at the end uh, or the start of Acts when he is just about ready to leave the disciples and he tells them to go into Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit to baptize them. You think about this. He tells us to the disciples that he has spent years with intimately training and discipling. These are people who have been to the cross. They saw him at the foot of the cross and had grief when he died. They had the joy of the resurrection. And then they walked with him afterward while he taught them some more before he rose into heaven. And yet he told his disciples that there was more to come. A good example of this is Peter. Peter was a disciple in the inner circle of the twelve. I love Peter because in some regards he reminds me of myself. It's a little bit crazy. Sometimes he has a temper. Um, But he he wasn't well-spoken. He was a Galilean. He didn't do things well on his own initiative. He was rash, sometimes doing some very stupid things. And he said some very stupid things. The night of the Last Supper, he was with Jesus, and he promised Jesus that he would go to prison and to death with him. And then just in a few hours, we see that humanity... We see the result of the fall again because instead of agape love, that self-sacrificing love, we see first and foremost Peter with self-preserving love. Self, self first, relationship with others second. He denies Jesus. At a time when Jesus needed him most, he was not there. But Jesus is gracious and merciful And he redeems Peter. We see that later when, after the resurrection, Jesus seeks out Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, I do. Feed my sheep. This happens three times. And in Jewish culture, three is very, very important because it signifies divine completion, divine wholeness, perfection. It was important for restoration of relationship between him and Peter when Peter had broken that relationship. But that wasn't the end for Peter either because Peter was one of those disciples to whom Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come and be, to baptize you because the end is not at the foot of the cross. The end is not the resurrection. The end starts with the Holy Spirit because sin, original sin, disrupted our relationship with God and how we reflect God. Original sin disturbed how we reflect God. Jesus' death and resurrection removed that guilt of original sin. That means mankind can experience renewal in the image of God, but simply believing doesn't restore the image of God. We must be entirely sanctified to do that. We are called to holy living. So to make something holy or or to sanctify it is to declare it holy. To be entirely sanctified means that it is transformed at the full being, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Have you heard these words before? Heart, soul, mind, and strength. Sometimes we think of holiness in terms of perfection, Christian perfection. We think of dead to sin, purified. So when we're told to be entirely sanctified, it can be a little overwhelming to think of being completely pure, to be perfect. Right? It's a little scary. But let me ask you, can we be Can we be entirely sanctified? Not on our own. Not on our own. It was made clear in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, after the fall, God told his people, be holy. As I am holy. He knew their broken state, and still he told them to be holy. And he set up the law, which was the framework for them on how to live holy lives before God. But the law could not create holiness because we cannot earn our redemption. We can't. Nothing we do on our own is going to bring us closer to God. And further, the law cannot compel us to love. Love is an outpouring of the heart. But yet God still calls us to be holy. So to be free of the root of sin, we first start by consecrating ourselves. What is that? It's to dedicate ourselves to God's purpose. We start with consecrating ourselves. That's relinquishing of self. And that's what Paul is talking about when he says to be, make yourselves a living sacrifice. It is giving yourself to God. It is not surrendering, because surrendering means I have no other option. I'm waving the white flag. You can have it. This isn't the way it works. God is not saying only if I'm your last resort. He's saying, give me who you are, all of you, because you love me. It's a personal sacrifice made in loving response to God. But that also doesn't make us holy. Consecrating ourselves isn't what makes us holy. Only once we've done that can the Holy Spirit come in and complete his work in us. And then he can heal that infection of original sin in us. The Holy Spirit wants to fill us deeply in that God-spaced hole inside of us. And when he does that, he's going to purge the sin out of us. Entirely, He is the cure. That is the cure to sin problem number one is the Holy Spirit coming inside and and sanctifying us entirely, recreating us in the image of God. He also helps us transform our mind to know and discern the will of God. And that's what Paul is talking about in this passage when he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The Holy Spirit is doing the work to help you because Of this work of the Holy Spirit, we can live according to that original plan and the original righteousness of creation. Again, this is not work that is achievable by you, it's not achievable by me. It is the output of the Holy Spirit living in in us. So when Paul is talking to the Romans in verses 9 through 13 today, he listed some behaviors and those are what we see as outputs. I'm going to paraphrase. It says, let love be genuine. Serve each other. Serve God. Stay in tune with God. These are not works. They are the outpouring of a response to God. The inner presence of the Holy Spirit becomes the outer life of Christ in us. This isn't just something Paul made up and wrote to the Romans. It's something God wants for us, and he tells us throughout the Bible from the Old Testament, clear until the end. 1,100 times it tells us to be holy, to be pure. It calls for perfection. It's pretty clear that this is something God desires of each of us. The goal is not just restored relationship with God. It is to be restored in his image, to reflect God, Jesus actually teaches on this in Matthew 5, verse 48. It's the end of the Sermon on the Mount. After going through what uh, he talks about for the Christian life, what what that looks like, he says, Be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. If we think about perfection, that's a little scary. And it can be a heavy burden on us. But Jesus doesn't come to bring us heavy burdens. Jesus actually came to alleviate heavy burdens. And he did that during his time of ministry, looking at the heavy burdens that the Pharisees had exerted on the people while telling them to be holy unsuccessfully, right? They they were never able to get there on their own. Jesus comes to give us a light burden. And so when Jesus tells us to be perfect, the means for us to get to that point of perfection is summed up in something he tells us. Love God, love others. Such love is fully the work of God in us. The Holy Spirit's sanctifying grace purges original sin and gives us a heart of pure love. Love expelling sin and governing both the heart and the life of a child of God. The refiner's fire purges out whatever is not of God, whatever is not holy. This is the love of God displayed in us. In one of my ministerial classes, I came across a quote about holiness, and I think it is really good to help us understand what this is. It says, We never possess a quality or an attribute that we own that characterizes us as holy. Ours is always a reflected holiness, much like the moon. The moon has no light source at its core, It shines with light only as it remains connected to the sun. No sunlight, no moonlight, no God, no holiness. We are not holy, it is God who is holy. We are called to reflect God's holiness. That is God's holiness in us. And when we reflect God, it is for his glory, for his purpose, We are called to purity, to be special for his use. We need to come before God with reverence. It's not simple gratitude for fire insurance. It's because we want relationship with him. When we are entirely sanctified, it is the Holy Spirit that has fully come to dwell in us. And when we do this, if there's anything or anyone else, that we are giving more of our heart to we can't be entirely sanctified God wants all of us and that is that self-sacrifice that we've been talking about if our musicians would come we cannot continue to walk with God and walk behind the will for us that he has so what do we do Paul tells us to make ourselves living sacrifices for him how do we do this First, we make God a priority in our life. This could mean giving up something that you've made a priority in your life. How many of us have all the time in the world to look at a phone and look at Facebook, but not time to look at God's word? How many of us have time to be on our knees in a garden, but not time to be on our knees in prayer? God wants to be priority in your life. Second, we need to analyze our lives in the context of how we reflect God. If there is anything in us contrary to holiness, God wants us to deal with it. It's like peeling back an onion layer by layer. God will show you a piece, and then you get that dealt with, and he'll say, hey, here's a little bit more. This is the continual work of the Spirit in us to reveal this to us as he continues through our lifetime to mold us in the image of Jesus Christ. That's the benefit of life groups, you guys, is as you are with other people, building relationships with people, perfect relationships, they can say, hey, let's talk about this thing I've noticed. And they can sharpen you. We are called to sharpen each other. But part of it is knowing those shortcomings that you can address before God. And then finally, we work on love. Again, we cannot create perfect love in us. This is the Holy Spirit at work. But we can have a heart that is receptive to love. And it starts with looking at how we respond to things that we don't prepare for. Is our response one of anger? Is it one of obligation? Is it one of selfish ambition? If there's anything other than a heart of perfect love, it's a wrong response. Our heart cry needs to be one of love before God. Love to God, love to others, and including that that perfect love of self. Our devotion to God, though, is more than just giving him our hearts. It's giving him our bodies. It's giving him our present reality, our day-to-day existence. God wants every part of us, and that is about what entire sanctification does. It entirely yields us to God for his use. We are called to no longer be conformed to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed, to have our minds transformed for God's purpose. So, my my petition to you today, the heart of love, God's love, we want this. Make it your heart cry. I'm gonna go ahead and pray, and then we're gonna continue and worship through through giving. But let's think about this. Father God, we thank you for this message of your hard love. It's not an easy message to preach. But we know that you have truths that you want us to know. And you tell us again and again. You don't tell us to ignore your word. You tell us to be doers of your word. God, I just pray that we take this hard truth and we embrace it. And God, I know that you have ridiculous grace. Grace that goes beyond what we can even imagine, that goes to the core to draw us to you, and we are so far away when we're lost. God, we know that you are faithful and you are willing to to guide us to where you want us to be. Make us willing vessels for you, God, willing to do your will, willing to know how we need to change. God, our prayer is that you will entirely sanctify us, that we will be dedicated to your purpose, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.